because Christmas Eve is on the Sunday of Advent 4. Okay? So there are churches that will be doing Advent 4 in the morning and uh, Christmas Eve at night. Uh, we are going to be doing all Christmas Eve on that day. And I'm going to go through the schedule with you again uh, before we leave this morning. But we will be doing, but these lessons are uh, ones that we want to look at. We've talked about the fact that Advent 4 is kind of the culmination. We, we start Advent 1, and the emphasis is actually the second coming of Christ. Advent 2 and 3 deal with John the Baptist and preparing by repentance. Be it the first coming when he preached, or even now, awaiting Christ's second coming, it is repentance and faith. But by the time we get to the fourth Sunday of Advent, we are truly focused on the celebration of the birth of Christ. And so the readings focus on the birth of Christ, the promises thereof, and so that's what our readings do this morning as we go through them. Now, um, we're going to start with 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 11, and verse 16. Now, 2 Samuel 7, to talk about the context, 2 Samuel 6 is where David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It had been housed in a town called Baal Peor, or not Baal Peor, Baal Judah, which means God of Judah. But the children of Israel changed the name of the town so that the first, so that the name was not Baal, because Baal came to be associated with, of course, false gods. So they changed the name to Kiriath-Jerim. So totally different. But it was housed in the house of Aminadab. And so it came time that David thought it was time to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This is also the story where they put the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart and were pulling it on an ox cart to Jerusalem. And it hit a bad place in the, in the road, and a man who was standing there put his hand out to steady the cart, and he died instantly. You can't touch the Ark, okay? Represents the holiness of God. His name was Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, and he died. David was upset that this happened, but God had made it very clear you don't touch the ark. So from then on, when they moved the ark, they went back and they realized the ark was never to be moved on an ox cart. It was prescribed that it was carried on poles. 
and it actually had rings on the side so it could be carried by poles and that's the way they did carry it from then on. So the ark is brought to Jerusalem. Now the chapter after this is a chapter that's kind of summarizing things and it declares that David is now in control. The enemies have been defeated, David is in control. And this chapter is in the center and we'll see both those themes. So let's look starting at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, okay, the king said to Nathan the prophet, he is a prophet but there isn't a book named after him, okay, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So when they finally get the ark to Jerusalem, David realizes, I'm living in this extravagant palace, and the ark's in a tent. This is not right. This is not right. Let's build a house for the Lord. Now let's continue. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, the tent of meeting, and the ark was housed in the tabernacle. It was a tent. Now, it was a tent prescribed by God, but it was movable. And it was set up and uh, taken down as the children of Israel move through the wilderness. So he had never been in a permanent house. He had always been in a movable tent. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. All right? David is what we call a type of Christ. He points to Christ. He's called a shepherd, and we call Jesus the good shepherd. Cut off all enemies and before him, Jesus Christ would cut off all our enemies. Okay? 
So the very life of David in many senses point to Christ. Okay, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies, that's declared in chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now the tables are turned. David was going to build the Lord a house, and now God says, no, I'm going to make you a house. Only it's not going to be a structure. Now, why wasn't David allowed to build the house? Well, I'm going to read you a passage, and if you have a Bible, um, it's from uh, the book of uh, 1 Chronicles, chapter 22, and there God tells David, us, why um, he can't build a house, that his son is going to build a house. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So, God prescribes that because... Um, David has shed so much blood in warfare, he is not to build the house of the Lord. Solomon, who inherits a time of rest because of the warfare that David conducted, he will build the house. That is the reason God would not let David build the house. But back to the promise 
Look in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, he's saying your descendants are going to rule on the throne forever. Now, that's quite a promise. That's quite a promise. We then, you know, when we get to Matthew, and he gives us the genealogy of Jesus, the chapter starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, we go through the genealogy. Now, if we went through that genealogy, we would find all the kings that descended from David and ruled Israel. Not only before, but after the exile into Babylon. There were some very good kings, and there were some stinkers. The purpose of the genealogy is to remind us God made a promise to David, and in spite of the fact that some of those kings were faithful and some of them were not, God is still faithful in keeping his promise. So the genealogy goes through the kings, and then it comes to Jesus. That is how David's line continues forever, because one of his descendants was God. So when God made the promise to David, he was saying, your house is going to rule on the throne of Israel forever because one of his descendants is going to be Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who will conquer and rule forever. So this passage in 2 Timothy is already promising, already promising that um, this throne would rule forever. And so we get in, even in the book of Revelation, uh, we hear this about Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Okay? So he was, Jesus Christ was not only a descendant of David, but true God. And that is how God kept the promise to David that his, a descendant of his would be on the throne forever.
And in the psalm it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That really confused the Jews because they thought that truly a descendant of David would reign, but they weren't really willing to say he's God. Okay. So here is the promise to David that his throne, on his throne, one of his descendants would rule forever. A promise of Christ. A promise of Christ already. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, made to David. Made to David. So that's why this lesson is in here for Advent 4, to point us that what's happening is not unheard of. What's happening was promised by God himself centuries before. But God is now fulfilling that promise. Okay? God is now fulfilling that promise. All right. Questions, comments on that one? Yes. Is what? The guy who studied the ark and Yeah. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. Um, you know, part of the fact is that you have to deal with is that they had forgotten the word of God. God said to carry the thing on poles. It prescribed the length of the poles that they were to carry it on. And they didn't do what the word of God said. But there's also the forgiveness of sins when you do that. So, but uh, God was making clear that everybody understood he is a holy God and we can't approach him until Jesus Christ. Yes? The Ark was lost. Uh, we believe, actually, the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is fairly accurate. It was carried off, we believe, into Egypt under the king Shishak. Uh, it specifically states that he conquered and carried off many of the articles of uh, the temple. And we believe it may have disappeared then. No. No, because what did Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Who is the temple now? Jesus. So no, we don't. And... Uh, uh, so from that point, you know, it was carried off into Egypt. After that, we don't know anything about it. It's never referred to again. It's never referred to again. Yes? Why is it only that Luke is the, the gospel to actually have the genealogy written down? 
Well, there are actually two genealogies. There is one in Matthew that begins with Abraham. But there is also a genealogy in Luke that goes back to Adam. And we believe this is because Matthew was writing to Jews, and so who was most important to them? Abraham and David. But Luke was writing to Gentiles, so his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, all people. But there are two genealogies, and you can't match them, folks. That doesn't work, okay? We'll go into that on another day, okay? All right. All right, let's look at Romans. When I was in seminary, I wrote my first sermon on this text. First sermon. I don't know where it is. I have the first sermon I preached, the, the, actually preached the first time, not for a classroom. I just found it the other day. But you know, when you preach for a while, uh, you read that old one? Oh, it stunk. <laughs> I wouldn't preach that today. Okay. You, you, things change, okay? Okay, so now we look at Romans 16. This is a closing doxology at the end of the book of Romans. Closing doxology. That kind of sums it up. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What is the mystery in Paul? The mystery is always that the gospel is for the Gentiles, too. That's the mystery that's been revealed kept secret for long ages, has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The prophetic writings, folks, those are not the writings of the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet. It was in progress. He is referring to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets of old. He's saying the gospel was in those prophetic writings. Okay? It's made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That doesn't mean faith is a work. It just means that is God's will for us. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's just kind of a summary that the preaching of Christ has gone forth and it is for all people, all nations. It's been revealed to us, first of all, by prophetic writings, and it's also been revealed to us through the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is emphasizing. 
That's what it's emphasizing. It's to be made known to all nations according to God's will that all may believe. And to God be the glory in Jesus Christ for making it happen. That's the summary of this short doxology. Okay? And again, it's chosen because that's what we're about. Jesus Christ has come, and what do we do with that? We preach it. We make it known to all nations so that all may come to faith. All right? So that all may come to faith. And that's really as much as we need to say about this particular, this particular passage. So let's move on to Luke 1. And this is how you truly know that we're to Christmas. All right, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In the sixth month of what? Six months after the angel Gabriel had appeared to Elizabeth and told her that she would have John, that Zachariah and Elizabeth would have John. So we know that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, and it's based on this verse, okay? To a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. Now you know why that's so important from 2 Samuel, the house of David. Now let's talk about the, the whole concept of betrothal in those days. If a man wanted to marry a woman, he would ask her to marry him, and the engagement period was exactly one year. You were married one year later to the day that he asked the question. That's the way it was. There weren't short engagements, there weren't long engagements, it was one year. Now betrothal was considered binding. This was a formal relationship. In fact, there are ancient accounts of a man is betrothed to a woman and he is killed in battle. The woman from that time on is referred to as a widow. So betrothal was that binding. But they did not live together. Not like today. It's one of the toughest things we have to deal with. You don't live together. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. No cleaving before leaving. 
You don't do that. And that was the rule then. Okay? So they lived separate lives for one year. And after one year, they were married. It is sometime in that one year of betrothal that the angel Gabriel came to Mary. Sometime during that year. Probably fairly soon because we're still told in Luke 2 when they go to Bethlehem that she's still betrothed, not married. Okay? So, to emphasize that she's a virgin, okay? And Joseph, of course, is from the house of David, so is Mary. Uh, we go back to those genealogies. Matthew is pretty much based on David's line, and many believe that Luke's is based on Mary's line. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Mary, Luther speculates on this, and I want to emphasize that it's speculation. Marriage customs in that day were different than today, and girls were married at a very young age. Luther conjectures that Mary was 14 or 15 years old. Now, we don't know that for sure, but marriage customs were different. But she was probably younger than marriage, marriage ages today. All right? Now, greetings, O favored one. O favored one's a good translation. Basically, the, the word is, you're graced. God hasn't chosen you because of your works. God hasn't chosen you because of something you've done. You have the grace of God. By the grace of God, He has chosen you. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Imagine a 14 or 15-year-old confronted by an angel and saying, you're special. Okay? What does this mean? I mean, we have to put ourselves in Mary's shoes. This had never happened before. We do not believe that Mary was immaculately conceived and had no sin. We don't believe that at all. Uh, that's a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and I'll tell you what we teach concerning her conception in a few minutes. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
he will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now you know why they picked Second Samuel to read as the Old Testament lesson. We've come full circle. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay? So there's the promise to Mary. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? All right. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, let's talk about this. You have to get a holy, perfect Jesus. How do you get there? The Roman Catholic Church chose to go the route that the Pope declared that Mary was immaculately conceived and that Mary was without sin, therefore Jesus was without sin. There is nothing in the scripture that says anything about that. It is by papal decree, and we as Lutherans do not believe that. We believe just what the words here state. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Who gets credit for sinless Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Jesus had to be true man. He had to be true man. That is like Adam, but without sin totally a human being, but without sin. Mary was a sinful human being. So, we believe that the Holy Spirit came upon her and separated the sin from her seed, and she conceived, and therefore Jesus was sinless. It is the Holy Spirit who removed the sin at the moment of conception, and that is why Jesus is sinless. Okay? No sexual intercourse. That is why Jesus is sinless. The Holy Spirit saw to that. So he is truly man, completely and totally, but without sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, the true Father of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, not Joseph, not 
because Mary was sinless. Okay? So the credit is given completely and totally to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's spelled out in the doctrinal writings. As I say, we don't give human beings the credit for doing anything that would bring about a sinless Savior. That is all completely and totally the work of God. The work of God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who receives the credit. Therefore, Mary has a unique title that is rightfully hers and that no other woman on earth has. And that is, Mary is the mother of God. Okay? She's the only one that can be called that, the mother of God. As Luther read about all these accounts, what astonished Luther was Mary's faith. Was Mary's faith. It just blew him away. How could a 14, 15 year old girl be confronted by an angel, be told you're going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have the Son of the Most High. And she said, May it be done to me as you have said. Remarkable faith. Remarkable faith. And that's what, what Luther wrote the most about was the faith of Mary. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her, and she conceived. That was it. As soon as she said, let it be, as the Lord has said, she conceived. We believe that. So in faith, she said, okay. Now, this presented lots of problems. Uh, you know, several years ago, it was very fashionable to doubt the virgin birth. Well, let me tell you, the first person to doubt the virgin birth was Joseph. <laughs> His betrothed comes to him, and she says, Honey, I'm pregnant, and God did it. You buying that? First one to doubt was Joseph. And Joseph was going to do what? Put her away. Because the law 
of Israel prescribed that if she was found to be with child in the time of betrothal, she should be stoned to death. So he was going to put her away quietly. And any time that God has a plan and man's about to wreck it, he has to intervene. And so he intervened, and Joseph had a dream and confirmed what Mary had said. And that's in Matthew 1. And confirmed what Mary had told him. And Luther also marvels at that. That Joseph and Mary were such people of faith that they believed the Word of God and they acted on it. They acted on it. So Mary went away when she was with child for a while to be with Elizabeth and uh, all know that story that when she appeared to Elizabeth John the Baptist leapt in the womb at the presence of Jesus, and all that leads up to the decree from Caesar Augustus. So it all fits. Now there are several things that are parallel between the Gabriel's visit to Elizabeth and Gabriel's visit to Mary. In both cases, it was an angelic messenger that told them about what was going to happen. To some degree, this is also true with Abraham. But Abraham, when Abraham was told Sarah was going to have a baby, it was God himself. The recipient of the news is troubled. Okay? Elizabeth didn't know what to do, neither did Mary. There is a calming of fear. Fear not. Okay. There is the promise that a great one is about to be born. John the Baptist was declared to be one who would be great. Jesus, even greater. But that was in both announcements. A sign was given. And the assurance of the fulfillment. And in both cases, the promise is uh, revealed with the word, Behold. Okay? So there is some parallel with the way that Luke chooses to tell the story. These two events um, in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and 2 are what we call the infancy narratives. There's a brief account in Matthew, but very brief. But these are the infancy narratives
of what led up to the birth of Christ. All right, so obviously uh, this is a very appropriate reading for Advent 4, which is usually just a matter of days before the celebration of Christmas, that this is how we got there. This is how we got uh, the, the promise of a Savior to, to not only David long ago, but to Mary, and ultimately the promise of God is fulfilled. So you can see the progression in the Sundays in Advent that get us to the culmination, which is the celebration of Christmas. All right, questions? Yes? Do you think Mary or Mary and Joseph understood the enormity of what was happening, or do you think it was at the resurrection where they really... You know, that's a good question. Uh, did they understand the enormity of what was happening? Um, I think it had to be reinforced. So when they went to Bethlehem and had a, a baby, and it's dark and it's cold, and they're looking at this baby saying, wait a minute, this is the Son of the Most High who shows up, the shepherds. They told us this is a special baby, a Savior. So that reinforced what Mary and Joseph thought. Then the wise men come. We've seen his star in the east. Again reinforcing what Mary and Joseph. And then they take the child to the temple for presentation, and there's Simeon. And he tells them about this child. So over and over, the word of the Lord comes to Mary and Joseph to affirm who this child is. They heard the promise, but it's affirmed over and over by others also. So they probably had to hang on in faith just like any of us. But at the resurrection, they would At the resurrection, Mary got it. But that's when everybody else got it, too. That's when everybody else got it. Can you imagine? I've often wondered, what's it like to raise a perfect child? And you're not? What is it like to raise a perfect child and you're not? That's, that's, that'll send you screaming into the night. Uh, the thought of trying to deal with that, okay? Yes? Can you tell us how people regarded dreams and astronomical signs back then? Well, um, differently. But uh, we only know if a dream is from God, if God's Word tells us. And we don't know that today. At times we think we do. But this word 
the Word of God confirms this to us, that this was God speaking. Yeah. Somebody else? Uh, uh, the, the thought is Mary and Joseph had other children. Uh, what was their reaction? Well, we know James, the brother of the Lord, came to faith and was martyred. So we don't know about all the rest, but uh, at least in one case they came to faith. But, you know, you can imagine that that was hard to deal with. Your brother or sister is perfect, okay? The perfect child is as I was. Go ahead. I do not know that. I can't answer why Mary went not to her own mother, but to Elizabeth, unless she was deceased. I don't know. Don't know that one. Yes. Do we know how old Joseph was? Do we know how Joe, uh, old Joseph was? No, but the customs then were that he would have been older. Okay. He would have been older. Yeah. All right, other things. Yes? Has anybody ever seen the, the Bibby story that came out about 10 years ago? Uh, I don't know what the errors are in it, but it's, it's pretty wonderful. The Nativity story? About 10 years ago. I'm, I don't know that I'm familiar with that one. Okay. All right, other questions. Yes, Jacob. I feel that Luther struggling with um, Mary's faith is kind of strange. Did Luther ever have an angel of God? No, uh, he, never, uh, he never claims he saw an angel or an angel spoke to him. There is a place, there is a story that when he was translating, uh, and, and he was a, a monk that was in hiding after the uh, decree of his excommunication and that you could kill Luther. He was sitting in the room, and uh, the devil came, and he threw his inkwell at it. And there's a dark spot on the wall where they think this may have happened. Now, that's all... Sounds good, but Luther never, never claims to have seen uh, an angel or had an angel come to him. All right? At least not that I know of. I'm sure he would have told us about it if he had. It's not the kind of thing you hide, okay? All right, other questions or comments? Now, next week, when you come to church, we're not going to read these lessons because we're not celebrating Advent 4. We are celebrating Christmas Eve. At 8, 9.30, and 10.45 in the morning, just normal times for worship. But they will be Christmas Eve services, and there will be a puppet show for the kids at 9.30 and 10.45. No afternoon services. 
No afternoon services. We now have video cameras on the door. We're going to look at those next week and see who showed up for afternoon <laughs> services. And we ought to get some laughs, okay? So uh, then, but we are having two evening services at 8 with Aaron Bodie and at 10.30, the candlelight service. There will be different sermons, one in the morning, another one in the evening. So if you want to come morning and evening, you may. They will be, all three services will be the same in the morning. The 8 o'clock service and the 10.30 service are both a little different, okay? No fellowship breakfast, no Sunday school, no Bible class, okay? And then 10 o'clock, Christmas morning. Got it? I don't want to see you on that videotape. <laughs> at 5 o'clock in the afternoon after I told you all this. All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.